Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and I want to thank you for taking the time to join us for today's show. On the show today, we have the man, the myth, the legend, Frank Shamrock, the guy that Strike Force was built upon, the man that headlined uh, a few of the early events, and a guy that really put the promotion on the map, so to speak. Really excited to have him on the show today. During the our conversation, we delve into his training for the Bill, the Phil Baroni fight, uh, including the origin of his knee injury that he sustained in training with Team Quest, uh, his thoughts during the fight, his taunting of Baroni while they were inside the hexagon, pushing him off him after he put him to sleep, the aftermath, and so much more. We talk about his relationship with Elite XC and Strike Force. Uh, we just get into so much. So it's a great conversation. Hope that you enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right, on the line with us, we have the man, the myth, the legendary Frank Shamrock. Frank, how you doing? Thanks for joining us today. Man, doing fantastic, Phil. Just living the dream, buddy. Awesome. Well, it, it's good to reconnect with you. I, I'm I'm glad that we get a chance to talk. Uh, we have talked about you so much on the show uh, so far because you are such a big part of the you know the the formation and the formative years of Strikeforce. So l- let's just jump right in. Uh, you were such a, an integral part of the launch of Strikeforce. I mean, it, it probably wouldn't have even started without you. So how big of a deal was main main eventing the the very first event? for Strikeforce and especially in your hometown. How, how big, how, how much did that mean to you? Well, it meant a lot. I mean, it, it arguably was one of the biggest moments of my career, um, you know, not just because I was in San Jose and, you know, I'd spent years training and martial arts there yeah. and teaching and, you know, training with as many people as possible. And, mars- uh, you know, martial arts in San Jose is just a huge, you know, cultural um, you know, sport, lifestyle. So there's a lot of martial artists there. So yeah, I mean, to be in front of my, my, you know, my people and to have, you know, the arena behind us and to have such a, you know, a, a monstrous crowd and then to fight at Gracie was just, you know, all those things were things I wanted to accomplish for the sport and for myself and then for strike force. Well, it, it, I mean, you know, sold out 18,000 people, just an incredible beginning. Um, so moving forward, you, you later 2006, you come to an agreement with Elite XC and you were asked at that time, I actually read um, some, an article on the press conference at that time. Uh, and you were asked about how you were able to sign with another promotion when you were still with Strikeforce. And at the, at that point you said uh, that your, your agreement with Strikeforce allowed for that. And that there were also rumors uh, at that time that you owned a piece of Elite XC, which is why, you know, which is, you know, part of the reason why you signed with them supposedly. So kind of clarify for us, I, I don't, you know, we're years past and so I don't imagine there's legal limitations, but you know, if you don't feel comfortable, you know, feel free, but, but how much can you shed light on that and let us know kind of what the agreement was there? For sure. Yeah. Well, Scott and I were very close friends and um, you know, he, he was the one that really talked me. Uh, well, it went both ways. Uh, he wanted to get into MMA and I really wanted, you know, to have a promoter that I could, you know, tell my stories to, and they would help me build a stage together, you know, somebody that I could work with hand in hand. And that was really Scott and, and the strike force opportunity. So we, you know, we talked each other into it, I think is probably more, more truthful. Um, and, and our agreement was that, you know, if, if network television came along, you know, that was my goal. 
and that was part of my mission was to bring the sport to network television. Uh, so when Pro Elite made their announcement that they had Showtime and you know that they were going to show mixed martial arts, um, I picked up the phone and called them. And um, you know where it, where it went south with those guys is they just didn't know mixed martial arts. They had boxing right. people, they had television people and film people, but they didn't understand the sport. And um, you know when it came down to our relationship, our relationship was based on the understanding that you know the people that knew the sport would come in and help promote it, and in particular me. Um, when it came to promoting me, because that was my main focus. So I was, uh, you know, I was an equity owner uh, in the Pro Elite deal. I was an equity owner in the Strike Force deal. Um, but, you know, it, it, it ended up going a little bit south because they didn't want, you know, the Strike Force team or Scott Coker. Or they didn't want that, you know, mixed martial arts vision that we were creating in their culture and in their promotion they had their they had their minds made up um, so we ended up on different sides of the fence but you know we ended up out. well it's you do end up fighting for them obviously the first event uh was february 2007 you take on henzo gracie you get dq'd because of the knees on the ground which at the time you you know you said you felt like henzo had kind of kind of milked that a little bit um but the good news for coker and strike force was that you were not injured coming out of that fight, which I'm sure he was grateful for because I saw articles around that time saying, you know, hey, if Frank gets injured, how will that affect the, the Phil Baroni fight, which you had announced in December of 06 that you're going to be fighting Baroni. So let's kind of shift towards that. Talk about that feud. Uh, you, you know, you meant, you just said it. You, you like telling stories. You're a storyteller. Uh, not saying, not not meaning you're a liar, but you you know from a creative standpoint, you're you're a storyteller and you liked you know how to promote and and that was that fight the promotion the promotional lead up for that fight with Baroni was just a masterclass in in how to do it and so talk about how that feud started how much of it was was real you leveraged YouTube just kind of give us the idea of the origins of that of that feud with Baroni for sure. Yeah, well, it started uh, shortly after the Caesar Gracie fight. And uh, we talk about the internet and using technology. That fight actually came to fruit because, you know, Caesar got online and basically challenged me, um, you know, after I retired again. Um, and, you know, when I saw the challenge, when I saw the response to it, uh, I felt like there was an opportunity to tell a story, the Shamrock Gracie story again, you know, which was really the story of the UFC you know, becoming founded. Um, and so it was through, you know, really accepting that storyline and then building it up. Um, and then as soon as the Caesar Gracie fight was over, Phil came out and started challenging me online, you know, assuming he saw an opportunity as well. And when I looked at his style, when I looked at his, you know, character, it just made perfect sense because he was the perfect bad guy. You know, it was East Coast versus West Coast. You know, he was a bit of a, a shit talker. And, you know, he was really good at his character. And at that point of the sport, you know, I felt like I'd accomplished becoming, you know, the greatest, you know, my goal of figuring out and being the first complete mixed martial arts fighter that had been achieved. So the next level was to get us on television and to, you know, tell these stories to the largest audience possible. Phil was just the perfect character. And also when I looked at his fighting style, 
you know, I knew that I could beat him. And so that was, you know, when you go into a negotiation or <laughs> when you go into a business relationship, you, you want to know that you can win per se. And, you know, granted there was risk. He's a tough guy, you know, knockout power. He's a strong wrestler. And, you know, all those things were, you know, a problem for me, but stylistically I knew I could beat him. Um, and I knew that he would carry his part. And, you know, that was the, the one piece that was missing from Caesar, you know, he was actually a pretty soft-spoken guy. Right. And, you know, it was challenging uh, to promote that fight because it was, you know, it was all on me, really. He was just a name and a, you know, and a placeholder. But when it came to Phil, you know, everything I would throw out there, he would come right back with. Um, and it, it turned out to be, you know, with vision, we had to use, like you said, YouTube. We created mockumentaries. Like I did everything possible to you know, paint Phil in the character that I thought he would be best at, which is himself. Um, and then, you know, I played the bit of a, you know, pot stirrer, but the, the storytelling was just fantastic. You know, it had all the elements of, you know, what a big fight is really about. And that is different ideas, different cultures, you know, different coastlines, different styles. And that's what I really look for in, in opponents and, you know, that's why Scott and I got along so well is he was, you know, he was a master promoter. He was a master businessman. And, you know, I was really good at telling stories. So to have someone as a partner that'd be like, well, you know, tell me your story. And then to try to build that, you know, from that point. And that's something that hadn't existed in the sport at the time. You know, UFC was just putting, you know, guy A against guy B because that's what was logical. Um, but I, you know, I learned through my career that it wasn't about logic, it was about emotion and feeling. And that's why people really tuned in. So, you know, it was, it, to me, it was a wonderful promotion because Phil, you know, stuck to his guns, played his character to the part. And then, you know, he really came to fight. And the only, you know, downside of that fight was I, I blew my knee out, you know, two weeks before the match. Right. And I was in an electric wheelchair. So, you know, there was some, it's the first time I've ever sat my family down and said, listen, this, this might not look like the rest of them or I just gracefully win. Um, you know, there might be some damage here. Um, and I'd never really been in that type of position before, but there was so much on the line with, you know, network television on the horizon with our partnership with Showtime. You know, I knew it had to be that, you know, I knew it had to perform and it had to be that level of promotion. So. Yeah, it just worked out perfectly. It really is. It's one of my favorite fights, like from from a promotional to watching it to, you know, kind of the aftermath. I, I just, from a pure entertainment standpoint, it's one of my, it's one of my favorites. And so you, you mentioned your knee. I wanted to talk about that. You had been training with Team Quest and Dan Henderson. Uh, I, you, I saw an interview with you after the, a couple weeks after the fight, maybe the week after the fight. And you'd mentioned your knee that, you know, your, your PCL might, your PCL and your ACL were both torn. Your MCL might've been torn. Just, you really messed it up. Do you, do you happen to remember what happened exactly? What, you know, how that, what caused that? And then how did that affect your training overall? Yeah. Well, I remember exactly uh, how it happened. And um, because it was also the first time I'd ever left my camp to go training. You know, I, I knew the danger of Phil and I knew I needed to mix it up a little bit. I was also getting old and, you know, getting tired of the game. Uh, so I decided to go down to Dan's um, and train. 
And it was, it was literally on the first day of training, I took Maurice Swift, uh, Smith with me and I basically brought, you know, my mind trust of trainers down to Dan's. But in our first day of training, I was sparring with uh, Sokoju, the big uh, grappler mm. uh, judo guy. Right. And, you know, he's 240. He's very explosive. Um, I was really working on my strike. You know, I was peppering him with strikes, and he was kind of stuck on the outside. And what he did was to come in with uh, judo like leg trip. And unfortunately, when he took my knee out, uh, my foot stayed there. And it tore all my knee tendons, ACL, PCL, MCL. Like, I tore everything in my knee. And I knew it immediately because the pain was, was just excruciating. Uh, I was unable to walk. You know, I got to the wheelchair thing. I was wheeling around. Um, and, you know, what, what was unique about it, it, it was the first time that I ever had, you know, I mean, I was sleeping in a guest room on a blow-up mattress. And so I was really in this sort of martial arts space where I had nothing to do but meditate. I couldn't train at all. And it was through meditation and just kind of finding my mindfulness that I realized I could do, I could do this fight even though I was injured the way I was. And so I was able to complete my training by, you know, basically laying on my back, letting people, you know, beat me. Um, you know, I kept my vascular up by swimming in the pool with um, my legs tied together and a bungee cord. And so I created a, you know, kind of a resistance training experience. Um, and it was so old school, like Maurice was standing there with a stopwatch and a stick. And after my intervals, he'd hit me with a stick. Mm -hmm. And that's how I knew to stop, you know, training and take a break. Uh, but it was the first time where, you know, I've always been very mentally strong. I've always been very mentally focused on what the task needed to be. But this was the first time where I really had to assess, you know, my physical structure and could I really truly do, you know, what what needed to be done. And when I went to the doctor, he said, well, you know, you can't damage it more. There's nothing left to damage. There's no, there's nothing holding your knee together. Um, and so that kind of actually freed me up because I was more concerned that if I went and performed, I would do more damage, you know, to myself. Right. And once he said, no, like you can't hurt yourself anymore. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay, we're good then. I'll, I'll, I'll go in and do this. And, uh, but during those hours of, of introspection and meditation, you know, I really got into my, into my physical being. I really, you know, dissected what Phil's strength was. And it forced me to face something, you know, that was, I was afraid of. It forced me to face one of my personal fears and I was getting knocked out and I was getting punched really hard. And, uh, you know, when I grew up as a grappler, you know, the game wants to get it to the ground. The game wants to you know, take it down there where that risk is not a problem. And I realized in those moments that I had to take this risk. I had to stand there. You know, I had to beat him up standing, uh, partly because I couldn't take him down. And it was just this huge mind hurdle that I, I was able to cross. And that's what allowed me to perform, you know, the way I did. And I mean, even to this day, people, you know, send me messages and they're like, you know, the sleeper move and the things you did in the Phil Brony fight were so you know, amazing. Um, and all that was just because I was in that mindset. I had to perform. I had to keep the pressure on Phil psychologically. And, you know, Phil's a sweet guy, but, you know, he hates to be teased and he hates to be mocked and he hates those things. Um, and so, you know, I amplified that side and yeah, and, and it turned out to be a great fight. 
Yeah, it, definitely memorable. And you mentioned the uh, kind of, I call it the night night gesture, kind of the sleepy, <laughs> you're, you're about to go sleepy, which is one of my, I don't like in fight taunting very much, but that's one of my favorites. Cause it just, it was just perfect. And it was, it was spot on, but let me ask. So you could, I, I mean, I, I watched the fight last week and I felt like I could see you gaining confidence as the fight went because you were landing and he had, he just, he didn't have a lot of hand move, uh, head movement. Uh, you know, he said he tore his groin either in training or at the beginning of the fight, one of the two, but I, he, I don't know how much that affected his head movement, but he just, it seemed like you were getting more and more confident as you went on it to the point where at one point you kind of pulled guard, you kind of went for a takedown, you kind of pulled guard and you could, you can see you're talking to him. Like, and I don't know what, what you what you were, I imagine you were talking smack, but well, is that accurate? You were getting more and more confident. You, you started talking smack to him. You started feeling stronger and better as the, as the fight went on. Is that, is that what, am I right in what I saw there? Yeah. Psychologically, I was, I, I was, psychologically, I was getting better. Um, physically, I was getting weaker because I just didn't have the vascular structure to sort of keep it up. So I was kind of walking this line. Um, you know, to me, that whole experience was a psychological experience. I knew how to beat Phil. And then for his style, you know, I had the boxing coach, uh, Tony DiMaria, and he, you know, told me, he studied Phil's hands. And he gave me a tip, which, you know, began to crystallize during the fight. And that was every time Phil wants to punch you, he actually moves his hands. Like he kind of, you know, they, they almost shake back and forth a little bit. So he had this little bit of a tail when he was going to punch. And I think it's because he was trying to punch hard and he was, you know, putting power into his punches. And so for me, the minute I saw his hands shake, I just, you know, punched right down the center. And that's why I was beating him to the punch so many times. But it was a weird thing because I had to, you know, keep the psychological pressure up while my body was fatiguing. And, you know, I, uh, at the end of the first round, like I was, I was shot. I was tired, very tired. And you can see how I just fade physically in the fight. Um, you know, I kept my composure and I kept my presentation going. But on the physical side, you know, I, I tell people often, if, if I hadn't choked him out, you know, I might not have survived, you know, a few more minutes. Because that was, that was pretty much the end of my, you know, energy level. Well, it's, and you, it, it matches up with what I saw at the end of the fight is, and I want to talk about kind of, once you get him in the, in the, uh, the rear naked choke, you put him to sleep, you sort of pushed and kicked him off his limp body off of you. That was, you know, watching, it was kind of a heelish <laughs> to borrow a pro wrestling phrase, kind of a heelish thing to do. Um, you said in an interview afterwards, you, he was crushing your leg. And I felt like you were kind of saying that a little, a little tongue in cheek, maybe, but um, you know, looking back at that now, was that, you know, kind of on, on purpose? And then I'll, sorry, I'll jump ahead real quick, but you were so tired and spent that when Phil actually did come to, and he went over to kind of shake your hand, like you were grimacing and kind of barely acknowledged him because you were, I think you were in so much pain, but so kind of talk about the putting him to sleep and your reaction right after that. And then, you know, kind of the, just the end of the fight there and, and, you know, where things stood with Phil afterwards. Yeah, well, I, you know, um, I put everything into that choke, like, because I was really starting to fatigue. And, and that's when he was starting to land punches on me. I just couldn't see the movement anymore. And I couldn't move fast enough to keep up with him. So, we, you know, the second round, he really started landing on me. Mm -hmm. um, and, 
you know, when I got into the choke position, um, you know, I just, I was like, this is it. This is the do or die moment. <laughs> and if he doesn't go out, I'm, I'm toast. So, you know, I put more than I normally would into a choke like that. Uh, but it was, you know, sort of my Hail Mary. I, I you know, I, I smelt the blood. And yeah, it's truth. When, I mean, he was just crushing me. Like I could barely breathe. I was okay. exhausted. And to have, to have him laying on top of me and laying on my hurt leg, um, it just was, I was like, just get off me. <laughs> um, and so it was really more of a, you know, I just need to get away from this moment. Uh, and, and, you know, the other thing that kicked in was at the beginning of that second round, um, I'd gotten a pain shot in my knee. And so I ended up, you know, normally you're at the arena hours before and you check with the commission. If not, you're fined. And, you know, there's all these safety parameters. Well, I was laid up in my hotel room uh, waiting to get my lidocaine shot in my knee. Because the doctor said, listen, this will last for an hour. And then if you elevate your heart rate, that number's going to go down. And so when I did the math, I was like, um, you know, find me all you want. I'm coming at the very last minute because I need this. I need this pain to stop so I can perform. Uh, well, the pain kicked in about the beginning of the second round. <laughs> so um, it was just pounding. And I, I you know, became another distraction for me. Uh, so that's what you see at the end of the fight is like, uh, you know, my leg felt like it just did when I tore everything. And I was in just terrible pain. I was exhausted. And, you know, I was happy I won. But you know, like I would have jumped right in the hospital bed and I was ready. You know, I was ready to be rolled out. Okay. Well, f fair enough. Um, well, in the aftermath of the fight, you, obviously you had a lot of physical healing up that you would need to do and it'd be a while before we'd see you back in the cage. Uh, but uh, Baroni tested positive for two steroids after the, after the fight. What was your reaction when you found out that he'd been popped and, and did that kind of affect your you know your thought process on him you know obviously you you mentioned before you kind of felt he was not mentally super strong Did that just kind of feed into that was this something you took offense to but what was your reaction after you learned that news well I knew all the, I knew all along you know <laughs> the reality is he's a 170 pound guy and he's got no business being 180 pounds or 85 pounds and trying to fight me so I you know, there's only one way you hold that type of mass when you're that size. And steroids is something I've always been against. I've never done it. I've never tried it. I don't, you know, I don't believe in it. But anyone who does is using a, a crutch. You know, they're using this, you know, fake, um, you know, medicine that's designed for something else to, you know, gain an edge. And so that actually factored into my, you know, psychology of fighting him. Uh, I fully expected him to pop and, you know, didn't really change my opinion in any way. Um, in fact, afterwards, I invited him to come train with me. Oh. And, you know, I thought that he performed so well. I thought that, you know, to, to, to perform the way he did under that type of pressure, you know, everyone, you know, wants to be the main event. Everyone wants to carry the show. Everyone wants to lead the promotion. But it's actually really stressful. And it's really hard to do to remain consistent, to be you know, that guy. So I was extremely impressed with what he did. And yeah, I was like, come out and train. Like, let me, let me show you, you know, the rest of the game. And uh, unfortunately he didn't, you know, take me up on that, but he did come years later and train with AKA and, you know, was a part of the San Jose team. Right. Um, but yeah, I wanted to help mold him because 
you know, to, like I said, to perform that well under that type of pressure at that level, there's something special about that. Well, it was, it was definitely a, a special fight and uh, you know, it, it was, yeah, it's just, like I said, it's just one of my favorites. I, I want to shift gears a little bit. I got a few other things that I, that I wanted to ask you about. Um, you know, obviously, one of the things that fascinates me the most in being a pro wrestling fan, the, the thing that really kind of bridges between pro wrestling MMA is the promotional aspect of it. And that's why guys like you, guys like Chael Sonnen, uh, even guys like Tito are, are some of my favorites, not necessarily because uh, all of you fight the most exciting. I, I exclude you from that because I, I think you, I never saw a boring fight with Frank Shamrock, but um even if guys didn't have the most exciting fight styles, they could talk themselves into main events. And while some on the MMA side may, you know, may not like that, I, I love that because to me, that's, I just love the promotional side of it. So just talk a little bit about your philosophy. I think there's still a lot of fighters today that just don't understand the importance of the promotional aspect of it. You talked about finding storylines and characters. That's very pro wrestling speak. So kind of talk about your philosophy in that and, and kind of, you know, what, what you see today as far as fighters adopting or adapting that like to that like they should or not. Uh, yeah, well, about today, I mean, people are, you have to do it now. You know, back then you didn't, uh, you know, tell stories, you know, be a part of the storyline. Uh, but, you know, the, there was a cultural barrier when I was, uh, at that time. And, you know, the, the, the barrier exists because your coaches say, well, don't worry about that stuff. Your trainers tell you, no, no, don't worry about that stuff. Focus on the technique side. Um, and I was very lucky, you know, in that my brother was a professional wrestler. And when I fought in Japan, you know, everything was story based. I was fighting Funaki because Funaki was the master and he was my teacher. And can I do this? And so, you know, the story built in is what brought the audience and kept the audience's attention. The fight was the candy, the fight was the celebration. So it's just something I, I brought early into my career. Um, you know, I can thank Ken, Ken Shamrock for that. I can thank, you know, Bob Shamrock, my adopted father for that. Um, and my love of pro wrestling as a kid. You know, I, I believed in those characters and what they were doing. Um, and in the early start of my career, you know, I sprinkled it on just a little bit, but when it made the big leap for me was, you know, I, I was arguably the, the best fighter in the world and it didn't move the needle. <laughs> you know, it didn't, we weren't on television. Like it, you know, it wasn't enough. And that's when I started digging deeper into my own ability to promote, tell stories and, and sort of look larger. Like what is, you know, what's happening in society? What's going on with my audience? What's going on with the community um, that I can connect with them that's bigger than martial arts. That's bigger than this moment. Um, and to go back to the Brony fight, I mean, East Coast, West Coast, like that, that's half of it right there. Right. You know, that's, that's half the story. Everyone wants to know what's going on there and who's better and what, you know, so to have those, to have that fabric kind of wove into it, that's what good entertainment is about. And, you know, I mean, I, I've been in the Actors Guild since uh, 1999 uh, when I fought Chuck Norris on Walker, Texas Ranger. And, hmm. You know, that, the whole thing is about story. You know, right. Chuck's coming in to save the day because an officer got killed and, and he's going to, you know, do the thing as a good guy. So to me, it was, you know, if you're not doing promotions and if you're not understanding what your brand is, then how are you going to tell a story that people care about? And that's what I always coach my guys. In fact, I still coach 
people like that in the business. What is your story? What is the mission? Why, how am I going to buy into that, spend my time, my money and my energy? And, you know, Conor McGregor's done a great job of telling his story. Absolutely. You know, he's, he's the story, story master and people love it. Even people that don't watch mixed martial arts love the story. Same with Ronda Rousey. They love the story. So for me, you know, that's, you have to win, number one. So the trainers are right in that area. But you have to be a storyteller. And the final act is your performance. And if you look at it like that, you know, you'll be very successful. Well, that's great. Very well put. And that, that yeah, that's, that's, that's basically what I wanted to hear. Uh, I, I got a couple more questions and then we'll let you go. Uh, again, I appreciate you taking the time. But I want to get in a little bit of fantasy booking. Um, at, at the time, you know, of uh, the, the Brony fight, you, that's when you win the Strike Force Middleweight Championship. Anderson Silva is about a year into his UFC middleweight reign. If you two had fought at that point, how, how would you have seen that going? How, how do you feel like your – or maybe even in your prime, how, how do you feel like your skill set mat, matched up with, uh, with the spider? Um, well, I mean, he would have been a difficult fight for me because of his height and his range and his, his accuracy and striking. Um, so it definitely would have been a challenge, but I do believe I would have beat him in the, the ground game and in the clinch fighting game, the game on the inside. And that's how, you know, that's how I looked at the strikers coming up. You know, many of them were better than me, but, um, you know, the energy it costs to fight in the inside game and the energy it costs to fight on the ground, when you, you know, lay that out over three to five rounds, it becomes a very different game. So I think I would have beat him in the long game, but definitely a big risk, you know, would have been, um, you know, Phil hit me, you know, probably five or six good times. And it's the most I've ever been hit in my career by one person. Um, but I would definitely worry about the striking. Of, of Silva and, you know, highly respect him for his skill set. I would love to, you know, would have loved to make that match. I think now we'll, we'll play chess or checkers or, <laughs> you know, something like that. <laughs> Some, something you won't blow your knee out on or anything. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> All right. Um, well, looking back on your, your legendary career, I want to close out with two questions. One is if, which fight that you had, if, you know, the Ensign Inouye fight, the, the, the Tito fight, the Baroni fight, which one, if you had to pick one, kind of exemplifies the career of Frank Shamrock? And then what does strike force mean to, to you? What does strike force mean to, to the career of Frank Shamrock? Oh, yeah. Um, well, so I have, oddly enough, I have three fights, and each one sort of dealt with a different area. Um, for mm-hmm. me, the, the first fight was Incident Oe in 97, the Valley Tudo uh, match. Um, because it was the first time where I learned striking. Like I, I finally got it. Maurice finally banged it in my head. Um, and, but it wasn't the application of that. It was when he had mounted me and, and he was elbowing my head and, you know, from everyone's perspective, I was going to lose. But it was the very first time, you know, I grew up on the streets. I went to prison. Like I've had a, you know, a challenging life. But that was the very first time where I felt like my life was actually in danger. Where I was like, oh, this is it. I'm going to die. <laughs> and, and there was a, you know, there was a mental moment where I looked into beside myself and I went, wait a minute. Nobody can kill me. You know, no, this guy, nobody can kill me. 
and ended up beating him, you know, getting up, knocking him out, and, and you know, but mm -hmm. that fight lives in a very special place because most of us never face that moment in our lives. You know, right. we just don't push ourselves. We don't put ourselves there. We don't, you know, we don't do or die moments. And that was one of those moments where I accepted it, you know. Um, for me, it's part of the warrior's code. I accepted, okay, I, I, I'm going to die, um, but what am I going to do about it? And I said, no. And that changed my entire career. You know, every, every fight mm -hmm. afterward was changed because of that. And, and that was, leads me to the Tito fight because Tito fight was really, I knew I would beat Tito. There was no way Tito was ever going to beat me. It just, it didn't exist. Uh, but physically, he was far superior, bigger, stronger, you know, all that stuff. And so there was a chance he could beat me up. There was a chance he could outpoint me. There was a chance he could win the game. And so it took, you know, me really focusing on my body and making my body, you know, this machine. And I was a great athlete, but, you know, taking it to the next level there was, you know, a, a journey in and of itself. And from that moment on, nobody could touch my physical presence because I was able to, you know, really get in touch with that. And then the Baroni fight. And that, you know, that was all about spirit. And once I, once I realized what had to be done, and I was sitting in that room meditating in the dark, I was like, oh man, this has to be done. I came back out, you know, I got DQ'd in my last fight. Some of the fans are like, maybe Frank's not a good guy. Maybe he's not a martial artist. Hmm. And, you know, went against everything I believed in. So when it was time for me to check my spirit and to, to do what had to be done, you know, I said yes. And, and you know, the Brony fight was the result of that, even with one leg, even with everything that was, you know, against me, I was still able to perform in an amazing event with just, a, you know, a wonderful promotion. Um, and that, you know, that was in Strikeforce. That was the Strikeforce experience. And what Strikeforce meant to me and did for me was it was the first time where I had, you know, my stage. You know, Scott was the type of promoter where he's like, okay, well, tell me your story. What, what's going on? And then, you know, he's very wise as a martial artist to listen to the value points of the story and to then allow me, you know, to create that and then to support what I'd create. And that's something you don't see usually in martial arts promotions or boxing promotions. You know, it's A versus B. It's, you know, rank this guy, you know, rank that guy. So to be at that type of stage, you know, it was, it was fitting for me to end my career there because that's where, that's where I put all my everything. You know, I was the, I was the brand guy. I was the spokesman guy. I was the main event guy. Uh, I was all those things for as long as I could be, you know, until we were successful. Um, and then it was also the stage where I was able to put all this business knowledge that I had learned from my business mentors and from my teachers in business. And I was able to put those to work for the first time, you know, where as a performer and as an athlete, I also had a say in the business side of it. And that was, you know, that's what's led me to my career today was that that opportunity to, you know, spread my wings. And Scott was very accommodating and a great partner in that, you know, we, we had strengths in these certain areas. And when it came time to perform, to do our, business you know we were free to do that and that was you know it, it's just one of the best experiences of my life you know I, I i only regret that i you know we couldn't do it sooner 
you know, Scott and I talked for years and years about doing this and we had partners and this and that, and we just could never pull it together. Um, so my only regret was that, you know, we couldn't do this five to seven years earlier when I was a much younger man and I had more, you know, more physical uh, energy and strength. But everything in that experience is what has created this warrior's code for me and this, this you know, philosophy I live my life by now. And, well, it, you know, I've been very successful following that. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, your, your place in history, in MMA history is obviously undeniable. Same thing with Strikeforce and you've gone on, you, you mentioned that things that you're involved in now, just as we close up, can you uh, just let us know if, you know, people want to learn more about your, what you're up to and what, what you're, uh, what's going on with you. Um, let the listeners know and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap things up. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm deeply involved in our charity, the Shamrock Way. And um, we're now producing a docu-series, <clears throat> excuse me, a reality docu-series on uh, homeless. So we got a new show called Homebound and we are taking people that are homeless and getting, finding their families, getting them off the streets, getting them back into life and uh, rejoining society. And we're just starting on that right now, but it's been a powerful journey. Um, you know, I lost my brother after 10 years to being homeless and it had this profound effect on me. So besides our at-risk programs, besides the things we do at Shamrock Way, um, you know, this is our newest digital uh, product that we're doing. Our last one was the bipolar rock and roller film with Marlon Ronaldo. Right. And I was just widely received as become the educational film for bipolar Tremendous. awareness film for bipolar. Um, and, uh, and I'm also launching a podcast as well oh. called the warrior's code. Yeah. And we talk about all the stuff we're talking about, mind, body, spirit. It's leaders of industry, you know, successful business people, spiritual people, uh, fighters, people that have had those moments in life have, you know, created some type of vehicle or philosophy or system to find success. And uh, we're talking to them, we're finding out what that is and sort of sharing it. And, um, and I'm also for the first time um, creating an educational, a digital educational program for the Shamrock MMA uh, fighting program that I created. And um, I'm really excited about that because I haven't taught for years and years. I've been using my martial arts principles in business and in business leadership, but now I'm taking a step back um, and it feels like I'm a young man again. I'm actually teaching, you know, the basic level techniques and all the way up until you're a black belt, black shirt. So um, it's been a really powerful journey, sort of revisiting martial arts and and the technical side of that so that'll be coming out in the next few months and then in the uh, rest of the time i'm um a dad so right. i spend uh spend all my other time with my 12 and a half year old little girl and that includes uh virtual schooling camping fishing all the things that um make little girls uh tough and strong and and confident and powerful mm. and that is by far the most rewarding thing and uh, piece in my life right now. Awesome. Awesome. So frankshamrock.com is the, uh, the place to go if people want to learn more. Yeah. You can go to frankshamrock.com or I am a at frankshamrock everywhere. That's right. All right. Well, the legend, thank you for taking the time to join us on the show today. I, I appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. 
All right, I want to thank my very special guest, Frank Shamrock, the legend himself, for joining us for today's episode. Hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, I really enjoyed reconnecting with Frank. It was a great conversation. Uh, so make sure you check out his, his upcoming projects. Make sure you follow him on social media. Also coming up for us, we've got a great episode on the first Strike Force Playboy Mansion show. Uh, this features fights with Bobby Southworth, uh, Gilbert Melendez, Josh Thompson, and then also we see the Strike Force debuts of both George Masvidal and Joe Riggs. Uh, we are scheduled to speak with Joe Riggs soon. He will be the interview uh, episode after this upcoming episode. So we've got some great, great shows coming up. So make sure that you're checking those out. Make sure you have subscribed. Make sure that you rate and review the show wherever you find us. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, wherever you listen to us, please make sure that you rate and review. It helps others find the show. Also, make sure if you haven't already, follow us on social media at Inside the Hexagon Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. You can check us out there and you can reach me at phil at insidethehexagon.com. Would love to get your suggestions, your feedback, and that sort of thing. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off in this into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy, and we will see you soon. Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 